0: Welcome to the St. Andrew Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. No matter who you are, where you've been, what you believe, or whether you even believe at all, you belong here. Thank you. For the introduction to the scripture this morning, we're going to be taking a look at 1 John The short book known as 1 John proclaims the message in John's gospel in a changed context. 1 John emphasizes Jesus's humanity, the embodied word of God, faith to be lived out in community between God and people and among people themselves. This section of 1 John is one of the Bible's great love chapters, at its core, is simply this, God is love. And God is the subject and love is the descriptor. Many translations say that God's love is perfected when people love one another. The Greek words here are based on the word telos, which means goal. The idea is that God's love reaches its goal when it creates relationships of love with people and relationships among people. Hear now the verses from 1 John. So we have known and believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And those who abide in love abide in God and God abides in them. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness on the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. We love because he first loved us. Those who say, I love God and hate a brother or sister are liars. For those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. The commandment we have from him is this. Those who love God must love their brothers or sisters also. Amen.
1: Do you have any recurring dreams? You know, the, the repeat offender kind of dreams that show up unannounced on your doorstep with your conscience like uh, little mafiosos to announce that you've got some business still that you haven't taken care of yet? About 75% of American adults uh, experience recurring dreams and some of the most common, as you well know, are the dreams of falling or flying losing your teeth, <laughs> returning to school, sitting down to take that exam that you didn't study for, uh, not being able to, to speak. Some recurring dreams are just cruel, like the one I have when it's Sunday morning and I'm walking into church during the opening hymn and suddenly it occurs to me I actually didn't get around to writing a sermon for this week. <laughs> And I'm thinking I've got plenty of time cuz this opening hymn has 8 verses and I still can <laughs> And then the music stops and it's just me and all these blank stairs and the sad sad sound of sheer silence <laughs> I have another recurring dream I I bet you have had one like this it's where I'm in my house or it's the house that my dream says is my house and I suddenly realize that I'm in a room that I have never once been in before. It's a room that apparently has always been there, only nobody ever took the time to tell me about it. And sometimes it's it's a room down the hallway or up or down a flight of stairs that I didn't know existed. And and I enter the room and there's all this stuff that belongs to me. I didn't know I owned it. It's books and furniture, knickknacks. Or sometimes I'll walk in the room and There's a bunch of really cool people that have been having a party all this time, and they're like, oh, hey, Mark, what's up, right? (laughs) And in the dream, I'm thinking, I've lived here all this time, and I had no idea that this room existed, and how could I have missed it? Ever had that dream? It's a popular recurring dream, and it, it speaks about our lives, and maybe All those rooms are parts of our lives that we have neglected for too long or or maybe that our souls are longing to explore. Have you ever thought that maybe there might be some undiscovered rooms in your soul? Anne Lamott, uh, the great writer, uh, speaks of the craft of writing as metaphor for life. And she tells aspiring writers, if there's one door to the castle you've been told not to go through, you must. Otherwise, she says, you'll just be rearranging furniture in rooms you've already been in. And she says most human beings are dedicated to keeping that one door shut. But the writer's job is to see what's behind that door it's also the job of anyone and all of us who long to really know and experience God, to try the unexplored rooms of our souls. It can be tempting for Christians to just rearrange furniture that, that they've, they've already been doing in rooms that they've already been living in for all this time. And for many Christians, faith isn't just a house. It's actually something more like a fortress that's to be defended. And, and once they're safely inside, they assume that all they have to do now is close the door and lock it and, and guard their faith from the enemy of doubt and uncertainty and protect it from the questions and paradoxes of life and to keep everything safe and secure and invulnerable. But when it comes to faith, what if there are doors to rooms we've never been in. And what if in those rooms there is more to experience and more to encounter, more beauty, more wonder, more grace, more of God that cannot be contained in those cramped little rooms we've been living in all this time. Why the church? That's the question as we continue our Why Christian series today. Why the church? Why is why is church so central to Christianity, and what is, it, what is it that when we come here, we find that we can't live without? Well, first, let's be honest. Whatever it is for you, a growing number of Americans are living without it. In 1999, 70% of Americans said they belonged to a church. In 2018, that number fell to 50%. In 2020, it fell to 47%. And as religious affiliation has fallen, so too has church attendance, uh, especially in the wake of the pandemic. In 2019, 34% of Americans, just before the pandemic, 34% of Americans attended or said they attended uh, religious service at least once or twice a month. In 2020, that number fell to 31%. In 2021, it fell to 28%. Just last year, in 2022, that number fell to 26 percent. What's going on? Well, I have a theory. My theory is that for a growing number of people, the house that the church has built is too small. It's too confining. It's too restricting. And for too long, the church has told people that there are doors they must never go through. There are rooms that they are not allowed to explore. And instead of leading people through those doors and showing them who they can become, the church often has told people who they must be and what they must believe, which for a lot of people today just feels like rearranging their furniture in a room that's just no longer interesting or inspiring. Why the church? Well, there was a time when the church was thought of as something like a house. Not just a physical house like this, a building, but, but as a metaphor for what it's like to belong to a family of God. Uh, a family of, of God and, and be part of a, a people who are on a journey of faith. And the New Testament writers thought of church as something like the experience of living under the same roof with others on that journey. Belonging to a household. And in the years following Jesus, faith communities began to spring up. And most of these communities had to go underground. Because the the Roman Empire made it a state crime to profess faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Only Roman emperors could be called Son of God. And Christians who claimed otherwise were executed. Christians then couldn't meet in public spaces like this. They had, to, they had to meet secretly in houses. This is where we got the whole idea of house church. In the Greek, the word is ekklesia. It's often translated as church, but it means something more like gathering or an assembly of people. And ekklesia, as you might know, is the root word to the word that we use today, ecclesiastical which speaks of church as institution. Even answering the question, what is church or why church, is what we would call a function of ecclesiology. But before church was an institution or a building like this, and before going to church meant things like worship and music and preaching, ecclesia was just an underground gathering of about five to ten people, sometimes as many as 20 who gathered really for two purposes, for a meal and for conversation. Those gatherings back then were called love feasts, and a love feast resembled something like the Lord's Supper, in which Jesus broke bread and passed a cup and gave some teachings and washed feet and then had a meal with his disciples. That, in the minds of New Testament writers, was ecclesia, and it looked like what families typically do in a house. Maybe what you do, you, you love one another, you care for each other, you serve each other's needs, you, you eat a lot together. That looked like a household in the early church. That's what ecclesia really means, I think. Household. And we all belong to a household of some kind and we all know that there is no such thing as a perfect one. Households are messy, they are chaotic, They are perplexing, and sometimes they are insanely impossible, which is what John, in our text today, is addressing. First John was written around the the turn of the first century to a network of ecclesias, or churches, in Ephesus, in response to some great controversy over what it means to be a Christian in the first century world. Now today... If you were to ask somebody, what does it mean to be a Christian, you would get a bunch of different answers and a lot of um, of compelling ones. But in the first century, what it meant to be a Christian wasn't all that clear. Why? Well, for starters, back then they didn't have Bibles like you and I have Bibles today. Some ecclesias had documents or fragments of documents that uh, promoted the teachings and, and the story of Jesus, but but these writings wouldn't ever be considered authoritative or biblical for another 300 years. People didn't have little pocket-sized New Testaments in their back pockets. The gospel was was shared as spoken word in communal settings at love feasts. So if something controversial came up in your conversations about what it means to be a Christian, you you couldn't just solve it by saying, "Look." The Bible says it, and I believe it, and that settles it. They also didn't have any official doctrines. They wouldn't have any definitive creedal statement for another 225 years. What does it mean to be a Christian? They didn't have documents or creeds like you and I. And that meant that there was a lot of space for argument and for disagreement over what it means to be a Christian. Well, last of all, they didn't have any official rule book for how to deal with controversies or to draw boundaries around what Christians could and couldn't do in the Ecclesia. And can you imagine the chaos? I mean, what's a church without a rule book? We Methodists have a 500-page one, and we form committees to study issues, and every four years we spend millions of dollars and two long weeks in mind-numbing meetings talking about those issues. And wow, just look what it's done for us. <laughs> All the problems we've avoided, right? I mean, how did those ecclesias ever survive without a book of discipline? They had no Bible, they had no creed, they had no rule book. There was, it was a lot like building the airplane while flying it. And it was wonderful. It was beautiful and it was so, so hard because people are hard. And keeping a household together is even harder. So what do you do when you, you don't have a Bible or a creed or a rule book to teach you what it means to be Christian? Well, First John says this morning, you act like a Christian. That's what you do. You live like Jesus lived. You love like Jesus loved. And over time, by doing so, you become Christian. In the Ecclesia, right action was far more important than right belief. But still, you ask, how then do you love and live like Jesus? And that's at the heart of today's passage. There are lots of ways for us to love other people. Uh, have you ever found yourself in the drive-through line at Starbucks? When the person in the car in front of you pays for your order, and then you're um, invited, guilted, really, (laughs) into passing on the love by paying for the guy behind you. Some people say, that's never happened to me. That's happened to me like five times in the last year. I pull up to the window, and the guy at the window says, good news. The guy in front of you, he just bought your coffee. Would you like to pay for the lady behind you? I, I looked in my rearview mirror first. <laughs> and I thought, what would Jesus do here? <clears throat> would Jesus want me to pay for a grande iced, skinny vanilla, upside down caramel macchiato? Probably. So I handed over my credit card and it turned out that lady ordered drinks, I think for her whole office staff, <laughs> and it was the best tasting $37 Grande dark roast I've ever had. That's one way to love, but that's not the kind of love that First John is talking about. Because the Ekklesia isn't a drive-through of strangers, it's a family of people that you already know, some of whom you may not like much, maybe some of whom you just think are really weird. And to live in that household requires a different kind of love. What kind of love am I talking about? Well, two weeks ago, we talked about the story of creation and how there's all that stuff in the universe that's floating before the universe exists. It's floating around, it's darkness and void and chaos. The Hebrews called it tohu vavohu, the wild and the waste between being and non-being. And what does God say to it all? He says, God says, let, let there be. I like to think of it as this. God says to the darkness, you, you could become light. And it did. And God says to the disordered chaos, you, you could be ordered and beautiful. And it did. And to all the tohu va vohu out there in the world, and to all the tohu va vohu in you and me, God is saying every day, You can become this. We would describe that as a generative love, the kind of love that beckons and summons us to the promise and the full potential of who we are created to be. And a generative love that draws us then into the process of becoming. And 1 John, in the passage, as Amy said today, he calls it perfecting love. He, the writer says, God is love, and those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. In other words, that love is in us. It is in us. But it hasn't yet fully matured. And this is why it's really hard to love certain people. Now, that love in us hasn't been perfected. It hasn't reached fullness of life. Can you think of anyone right now in your life who is hard to love? This is what we find in those hard-to-love moments. Our natural default is to fear. It's the fear of getting hurt, getting angry, being wrong being conned, feeling forgiveness, maybe feeling compassion. Fear is ego stuff, and fear is the room that most of us live in most of the time. In that room called fear, we do a lot of rearranging of the furniture over the course of our lives. But First John suggests there may be more rooms in our souls to explore. And the writer says, perfect love casts out fear. Whoever fears has not reached perfection and love. Now the word perfection, it means maturity. It means ripeness. The kind of ripeness that you would describe a, a, a perfect tomato or a, a perfect palisade peach. It's what happens when the tohu vavohu within us decides to take form and beauty and, and leaves the room called Fear and enters the room called perfect love. And the writer says, you can become this. You can become perfected love in the world. How? By remembering, he says, that God first loved you. And maybe that doesn't sound all that radical at first, but I want you to think about it. God loved you first. Even you. I mean, you of all people. I mean, you know everything about you. Everything. Even the the things that are unlovable. And that is what God loves. And when you remember this, in those hard-to-love moments with others, you can try the, the knob on that door that leads to a different room. A room that you didn't even think existed and in that moment your heart begins to expand and your soul enlarges and you become a different person love is perfected in you why the church because at its best the church whispers to each of us and all of us together you could become this it can happen to you perfected love if you try the door There are a lot of other good reasons for the church, but there is none more important than being perfected in love. You cannot be perfected in love by taking a long walk on a beach or hiking on a 14er up in the mountains or sitting alone on your prayer mat meditating. These are all great things. But to be perfected in love, eventually you need people in your life. Especially hard people to love. You need to sit down at the love feast right next to your adversary and hold his hand during the opening prayer and ask her to please pass the salad dressing. And maybe after the love feast, you have to give her a ride home, right? That's why church. New rooms enlarged soul, I can't think of another place on the planet where that happens. The the chambered nautilus is a species of cephalopod that's known for its extraordinary spiraling chambered shell. It belongs to a genus that has barely changed since appearing in the fossil records 500 million years ago, before the dinosaurs. It's a native of the uh, tropical Pacific. And it lives in deep waters in the open ocean. And the Nautilus is this wonderful symbol of growth and transformation. When it first hatches, it wears a shell with about seven or eight chambers. But as it matures, it outgrows its present home. Unlike some animals that shed their skins like snakes or others that shed their shells like hermit crabs, the Nautilus doesn't grow by shedding its shell. It gains more living space by building new chambers connected to the old ones. Its shell slowly spirals outward. And when the Nautilus moves into the new chamber of its shell, it it closes off the chamber that it was once in Those old chambers are still useful. Uh, They hold air, which provides natural, uh, neutral buoyancy. It helps create some stability and control as the nautilus moves through the open waters. But the nautilus never has to go back and live in the old chambers, ever. New rooms lead to an enlarged life. Why church? Why the church? Because at its best, the church calls us, saying, you could become this. Saying, perfect love casts out all fear. Saying, hey, there's a new room I want you to see.
0: Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. If you'd like more information about our church or our vision to eradicate social isolation and disconnection by practicing the faithful presence of the incarnate Christ, please visit gosaintandrew.com. See you next week.